put your tinfoil hats on friends, we're gonna go down quite the rabbit hole today. I used to write my thoughts on paper, and then I wrote my thoughts on Twitter. And then I thought to myself, hey, why not talk about your thoughts? My name is Sarin, and this is my podcast where I talk about things that keep me up at night. Welcome to In 3, 2, 1. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of In 3, 2, 1. Thank you so much for your amazing response to my first episode. Now, in case you haven't noticed already, I would be taking things a little differently this time. I don't want to sound like a lecturer anymore. Some of you may have pointed out that I would benefit from taking a more conversational tone, so that's what I'm going to be doing here. We're going to be having a conversation between me and the rest of you. What are we going to talk about today? Well, we're not going to be doing a lighter topic this time. It's still going to be pretty heavy. I've decided to talk about human trafficking, actually. Specifically, the Wang Kalyan tragedy that happened in 2015. With also a reference to the sold like fish report that was released by Suakam yesterday. In the off chance that some of you are not familiar with what the Wang Kalyan tragedy is about, I'm going to give you guys a bit of a summary. So in April 2015, Thai authorities discovered more than 30 bodies in a mass grave in a makeshift camp near the Malaysian Thai border. And fast forward a month later, Malaysian authorities found 139 graves and 28 suspected human trafficking campsites in Wang Kalyan Perlis. Pretty nasty stuff, I know. This was all over the news, all over international news actually. Like, I found a few articles on Guardian UK as well. Except that no one really talked about it in Malaysia. I'll explore why later on in this episode. But yeah, let's just talk about human trafficking in general first. So what exactly is human trafficking? Well, according to the UN, so this is based on their Palermo Protocol that was signed in 2000. So I'm just going to read it off the website here. It says, The trafficking of persons as the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, or receipt of persons by means of the threat or use of force or other forms of coercion. And it goes on and on. So it basically means you're held against your will and you're also forced to do things that you don't want to do such as forced labour, sex trafficking, things like that. A large part of human trafficking often involves organ trafficking or the organ trade. And did you know that you could actually sell and buy your organs illegally? Slight caveat though, you need to be Iranian. Yeah, Iran's the only country in the world where buying and selling organs is legal, but it's only for citizens. But then again, why spend so much when you can get them for much cheaper on the black market? Did you know that you could buy a pair of eyes for 1,500 US dollars? The other organs are much more expensive, however. You could buy a heart for 120,000 US dollars. A liver goes at 157,000 US dollars. The most expensive organ, you ask? Well, they're kidneys, actually. One kidney costs about 262,000 US dollars, and that's on the US market. Prices actually vary according to country. Now, why, is, why are kidneys so expensive, you might ask? Well, that's because kidney is actually the organ to the highest demand. And that's also a reason for the high prices of organs on the black market. There is an extremely high demand and an extremely low supply. In fact, 10% of patients in the US die every year while waiting for a donor. 
and it's easy to see why it's a low supply, high demand situation has forced many people to look at legal methods to obtain organs. And this is where syndicates come in. In Malaysia especially, syndicates work with countries like India and China. And you have Malaysians going to these countries to receive organs. In India specifically, people are willing to give up with their organs in order to create money for their daughter's dowries. That's just that's just how bad the situation is. There are also things called multi-level trafficking, in which organ donors are also exploited in labor and sex trafficking. An example of this would be a syndicate where Nigerians are kidnapped and brought to Malaysia where their organs are harvested and then they're forced to work as drug mules. It's almost as if these countries have actually signed a twisted form of an MOU, you know. There's this article in the Pacific Standard magazine that was published in 2014. I'll link it in the description. Um, it's an interview with anthropologist Dr. Nancy Shepard Hughes. She talks about how organ trade rings are established well around the world. She mentions that Europeans actually purchase kidneys from India as well, while Israelis obtain their kidneys from Palestinians. Now, this is where things get a little controversial. She reveals that Israel often harvests the organs from dead Palestinians and IDF members who were involved in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and sells them to European countries. Oh, but trust me, it gets even worse. In Eastern Europe, a surgeon expressed his fears about how patients may have obtained organs from brain-dead individuals who may not be as brain-dead as we might like them to be. Here's another example of countries working together in the organ trade. Brazilians are often trafficked to South Africa to have their kidneys sold to patients from other countries. It is suggested that these two countries have strong links between the syndicates that are involved in the organ trade. The illegal organ trade is worth up to 1.7 billion US dollars annually. And for an industry, especially an illegal one, to reach such an extent, you can't help but wonder how was it allowed to propagate and grow to such a level? Well, you wouldn't be very far from the truth if you wondered if they hadn't gotten any help from the powers that be. It's common knowledge that gangsters, drug trafficking rings, prostitution rings often work with police in order to run their business smoothly. Law enforcement agencies aren't the only targets of these syndicates. In fact, many of them also work with hospitals and morgues in order to obtain organs from dead patients. Okay, let's go back to the Wang Kalian tragedy. Now, NST wrote an expose in 2017 about how Malaysian police were aware of the existence of these scams months before they had released information to the public and they had also ordered for the destruction of the campsites. Now, why did they do that? Were they in cahoots with the syndicates? Or was it just the police trying to hide their embarrassment after a major screw-up? Now, here's the thing. In the Soul Like Fish report, by Suakam, it is written that the Thai authorities were actually complicit in this tragedy. In fact, there are multiple testimonies about how the Rohingya refugees were actually given back to the human traffickers after being detained by Thai authorities. The report didn't mention anything about Malaysian authorities being involved. They did mention though that further investigation needed to be taken before they could confirm if the Malaysian authorities were involved. In it. I mean, it still begs the question though, why did they order for the destruction of the campsites? Why did they do that? Were they afraid of the implications and the work that they would need to do in light of discovery? 
Or was it just something more nefarious? Were they trying to hide something? The Suhakam report calls this a crime against humanity, which also happens to be one of the four crimes listed under the International Criminal Court, which of which its guiding framework is the Rome Statute. Now, I'm not going to draw any links between our reluctance to sign the Rome Statute to the events that have happened in Wang Kalyan. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that these two things exist. Now, it isn't surprising that the Rohingyans were targeted because of their current statelessness in Myanmar. But what were they used for? Were they involved in the drug trade? Were they involved in the organ trade? Well, turns out, Many Rohingya women, girls and women actually, were forced into child marriages and domestic services in Malaysia. And a total of 170,000 people were trafficked from Myanmar and Bangladesh to Malaysia and Thailand from 2012 to 2015. And while the majority were Rohingyans, traffickers had apparently began to target Bangladeshis as well from 2014 onwards. Drug trafficking syndicates often use refugees as drug mules. What they do is they would extort these people. They would say, you know, I'm going, to take, I'm going to kill you if you don't work for me. I'm going to kill your family if you don't work for me. And these people don't have a place to go. They don't have a, home, a place to call home. They don't, they don't even know if they can see their family members anymore. So the idea that their families, families' lives are at stake if they don't complete a task or, you know, carry out a transaction, a drug transaction, would definitely drive these people to become drug mules. Now, about the drug industry, what do you guys know about the legal drug industry, though? Yep, the one that's propagated by hospitals, medical services, as well as doctors. Apparently, Malaysia is a hotbed for medical trials. Now, this, this is according to an article in 2007 by Anil Neto, in which he alleges that companies use Malaysia as their site for medical trials due to our ethnic diversity. In fact, now the Penang state government has a marketing thing called Invest Penang. And apparently back in 2007, they said that Malaysia's ethnically heterogeneous population is a great place for companies, foreign companies to carry on their medical trials. And they also apparently claim that Malaysians are still drug naive. So yeah, you go to, your doc- you go to the doctor and you have no idea what you're buying. You just know it's panels of fever. And you can have your cough medicine and blah, blah, blah. And it's true. I don't think we Malaysians are pretty aware about the drugs that we consume, the medications that we consume. And it definitely do us a world of good to be more aware about these things, considering how our own state governments are actually destroying us under the bus. While 12 years ago, Malaysia was taking its first steps into becoming a site for clinical and medical trials. What's the story now? Well, apparently, while we've moved, we've actually moved past just having phase 3 trials. Now, a phase 3 medical trial is basically a trial to see whether or not a drug is effective. At this point, the drug is presumed to have some level of efficacy. It's presumed to be able to work to a certain level. We're now beginning to license phase 1 trials. A phase 1 trial is basically a drug or clinical trial that tests whether or not a drug is actually safe to be consumed by humans in the first place. Now, to be honest, I don't exactly think that it's a bad idea. I think it's great that Malaysia is becoming more brave, more daring 
in terms of science and science experiments. It's just that it would be understandable to the Malaysian public that news that such news would be met with fear, you see. So what do you think do you think we Malaysians are being taken for a ride? I don't know, I feel like I I really don't think it's a bad thing to to have medical trials and clinical trials. It's just that I would appreciate if companies and the government were more a lot more honest and more forthcoming with their information. In countries like India, so you have these things called contract research organizations. You have them in Malaysia as well. So basically what they do is they design contracts with medical companies and they provide facilities for trials to be carried out in Malaysia or in a certain country. But in India apparently, what they do is these contract research organizations, they seek poor people, offering them cash in exchange for their health basically. And these contract research organizations, more often than not, they aren't really honest with their information about these trials. So poor people sign up for these trials without knowing the effects that they were, they're going to go through. So yeah, what do you guys think? Do you think we need to be more proactive in our consumption of medicines? I do think we'd, ben- we'd stand to benefit from a more comprehensive understanding of the drugs we consume, definitely. Anyways, coming back to our first topic of discussion, human trafficking is still pretty damn rampant in this day and age, and I don't see any sign of it slowing down. In fact, many international watchdogs don't even know the size of the human trafficking industry or the or how much it's worth. It's just so much of it is still in the shadows. We don't know how much we don't know, to be honest, when it comes to human trafficking. I don't know. It's a pretty scary world out there. Considering how extensive human trafficking rings are, it wouldn't be a surprise that the people you walk past in your daily lives, let's say when you're walking in Kuala Lumpur or in Bukit Bintang, for example, how many of them are involved in human trafficking rings? How many of them are looking for the next target? Before I end this podcast, I'm just going to leave you guys with this. You may not be as safe as you think you are. My name is Saren. And thanks for tuning in.